2: Right rug flooring.
3: Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio.
4: Matt had made a myth out of me, spinning so many stories about my travels and adventures that some of her friends did not believe I was real. Is this the one? One of them said as I sat in Matt's kitchen, tucking into a bowl of noodles. I was on leave from a journalism job in Cambodia, always choosing to go home when I had time off rather than on holiday. Matt's friend smiled and squeezed my arm as if to confirm I was not a ghost. Is this your baby girl with the big job and all the money? The one who almost died on the boat? Matt smiled and nodded. Her friend turned to me. Your mother talks about you all the time, she said, still holding my arm. She says you are special.
5: That's Putsada Reng, journalist and author of the searing memoir, Ma and Me. Putsada's is a story right from the start of overcoming staggering odds. It's also a story about familial loyalty and cultural expectations, and the strength it takes to become one's truest self. I'm Danny Shapiro and this is family secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves.
4: I was born in a seaside town in Cambodia called Kapong Saum in a hospital right in downtown near an open market called Sala. And I have no memory of where I was Born, although when I was a teenager, I went for the first time to visit. And immediately I fell in love with this beach community. I, I could smell the briny air and feel the, the sea breeze pushing through my hair. And um, there was something very idyllic and peaceful about it. What I remember about the first time I visited Sam, Cambodia, were so many palm trees just absolutely everywhere. Uh, coconut trees, just a landscape that was so very different from anything that I ever knew growing up in America. And it's one of those things where you you see a place for the first time with clear eyes and with new eyes. And it just seared in my heart as I felt so proud to be from this land, cut through with such a pure light. And um, just everything about where I was born engaged my senses, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the feel, everything, you know, with sand between my toes there on the beach, and seeing the beautiful, gorgeous sunsets um, there in Kapong Salm, it's something that just never leaves you. It was a bit of paradise, so it's hard to equate that slice of paradise with the reality of my country, which is the dark history of genocide. It was 1974 when I was born in Kapong Saom, Cambodia. Most of Cambodia had already been overrun by the Khmer Rouge communist regime. And so by then, I imagine, um, and my mother has the memories of this, that Kapong Saom, this place that I saw for the first time in a, in a time of peace, back then in 1974 when I was born, it was actually a, a period of terrible chaos. It was a quiet kind of chaos, as my mom describes it. She could feel a particular energy in the air and a certain heaviness in the air. Gopong as my mother tells me, had been a place for the ultra-wealthy and tourists to come and and play. It was a playground for the wealthy. And during the war, and specifically in 1974, when I was born there, suddenly it was absolutely quiet. Nobody was on the streets. There were no tourists. So my mother felt the weight of that moment and what was about to happen. I don't think that she actually knew that our country would truly fall to the Khmer Rouge at that moment in time, but she certainly felt that something, something terrible was on the horizon. My mom gave birth to five children, one of whom, her second child, died as a baby. All of my parents' children were born with a midwife at home, but something different happened with me. When I was in my mother's room, she felt nothing through the course of her pregnancy, no movement, no aches, nothing. It's almost as if I wasn't there. And she worried that this baby she was carrying was possibly dead. And so she made the decision with my father that for the first time, she would go give birth with trained professionals at the nearest Clinic or hospital to where my family lived in Riem, Cambodia, also on the coast, um, about uh, a, a 20 minute drive away. She entered the clinic, um, pregnant, intending to give birth. And uh, she was absolutely convinced that something was wrong with me uh, when I was in her womb because I wasn't moving. You know, she got zero sense that she was even pregnant at all. She only believed and was convinced that. Um, I was alive when she did give birth, and the doctor held me upside down and smacked me on the butt, and she heard a very tiny little, eek, a little cry come out, and that's when she knew her baby was alive.
5: And you were four and a half pounds when you were born.
4: I was. I was very little. My mother believes that she had a bout of hemorrhoids when she was pregnant with me, and she took medicine that had an alcohol base, and she believes that it was the medicine that she took that sort of left me drunk and debilitated in her womb and therefore unable to move, or, or not unable to move, but, but that I didn't move. It's almost as if I was just, you know, sleeping, wait, waiting for my day to arrive in the world. When she brought me back to the naval base where my family lived, my father was an accountant in the Cambodian Navy, the women of the village rushed to her to, to get a look at my parents' latest baby. and uh, they weren't convinced that my mother was carrying anything at all because they didn't see me for a while until they kind of peeled back the layers of, they called it grandma, which are um, which are sort of like Cambodia's uh, ubiquitous uh, scarves. And once they peeled back the layers and saw there was indeed a baby there, everybody was satisfied. But my mom tells me and has always told me that I was born sort of the kind of like the runt of the family, the smallest, the weakest the one who always got sick. And so that's the story that I believed about myself because that's the one that I heard most consistently.
5: But this isn't the only survival story that defines Putsara's early life. When Put is just a year old, it's no longer safe for the family to stay in Cambodia. And her parents, Ma and Ba, decide to make their escape. During that difficult journey, Put's life is very much in danger again. So in
4: 1975, there came a point when my father went to work, and there was a lot of chaos happening that day. And he was listening with his co-workers to the radio communications with their headquarters in Cambodia's capital, Phnom Penh. And their colleague in Phnom Penh said to them, the communists have arrived in Phnom Penh, they've taken over. If you can get out, get out, go, and good luck. And that was it, the radio went dead. It was April 17, 1975. And so my family rushed to the docks to escape the only way we could, which was by sea. And because of the fact that my father worked for the Cambodian Navy, we were allowed to get on board one of four naval ships that were docked at Riem Naval Base on the coast of Cambodia. In addition, my father was able to go back to our neighborhood and collect other family members. And so in total, there were 14 relatives that were able to get onto this boat before my father ran out of time. My parents tell me about that time that nobody on the boat, including my parents, believed that we were going to be leaving our country forever. There was always a feeling of we're just going to go out to sea for a few days, wait till things calm down. You know, With the help help of the Americans, we will prevail against the communists. That was the prevailing attitude among my father and his colleagues and the military wives at the time. Well, of course, that didn't happen. So suddenly these boats get thrust out to sea. And these boats, they were built for a crew of, say, 25 to 30 men. Suddenly you have more than 300 people on board each one. The way my mother describes it, uh, there was no room to sleep. You just kind of sat the whole time and then took turns laying down at night. On April 17th, 1975, it was actually 10 days to my first birthday. And from the time that I was born up until the time my family left the shores of Cambodia, I had not been doing very well health-wise. I was still pretty small. I had not been growing. Robustly in the way that my older siblings had been growing. And so by the time my family got thrust out to sea, I was already at a bit of a disadvantage in the sense that I was already, I won't say sick, but I was certainly, you know, in need of more nutrients than what we ended up getting on the boat. So when I turned one years old, um, about 10 days after our escape, I stopped moving and I stopped crying. There wasn't very much to eat on the boat. There wasn't much water to drink. And, you know, as you can imagine, a mother who is lactating needs nourishment to continue to lactate and to provide milk for her baby. But my mother didn't have that. And so she had no milk in her breast to, to feed me. And so I didn't eat. And she had tried to spoon feed a canned milk into my mouth, but I wouldn't take it. I was so malnourished that I just became very lifeless. As my mother describes it, um, I made no sounds, not even a cry, I didn't move. She described me as being heavy because she had been carrying me all these days um, at sea already, nonstop. And um, I remember asking her, how is that possible that a baby could be heavy, especially one who was born premature and also a baby who was you know, very malnourished? And I realize now looking back that when she described me as heavy, it was perhaps more of an emotional feeling than a physical feeling, that this idea um, and this absolute fear and terror that perhaps my baby's not going to make it on this journey. So what happened was there was a day that the captain of the ship walked across the bow and throughout other parts of the ship to sort of assess his passengers. And he came across my mother and bent low to her and apparently as the way my mother tells the story looked at my mother's baby and saw that um, this baby looked dead to him and he essentially told her if your baby dies you need to throw your baby overboard do you see all of these passengers on this ship if your if your baby dies your baby's going to contaminate all these other passengers on my ship even though i've I've heard this story so many times. I've told the story myself so many times. I've written about this story so many times and I still get emotional about it because I am not a mother. However, I can imagine what that moment must have been like for my mother. When somebody tells you your baby is dead, you have to get rid of this baby.
5: Uh, it's like, it's, it's nightmarish. And right. I mean, it's like really, literally the stuff of nightmares. So, what does she tell the captain?
4: My mother's so clever and smart. She understood that she had to sort of find some commonality between her and the captain, and and the commonality was religion. They are Buddhist, and so she told the captain. You know, she said "loke," which is a term of reverence in the Khmer language. Please let me keep my baby. We're Buddhist. Please let me keep my baby until we reach land, and I can give my baby a proper burial. And that was. The strategy that worked. My mother was able to keep me. When I think about it now, I can't imagine the fierce determination it must have taken my mother. Just absolute steely determination it took her to face down somebody of authority in our culture where we are always told, especially as women and girls, to respect authority. Um, You know, we don't have a right to request anything or to talk back or anything like that. And yet she did. She did it in the name of keeping her baby and saving her baby. Saving me.
5: In Put's memoir, she quotes the poet Warsan Shire, who once wrote, You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. This couldn't ring truer for Ma and their tumultuous experience at sea. There is no predetermined destination. The ship docks at the naval base in Subic Bay in the Philippines. For over three weeks, Ma has seen only sea and sky. When she finally sees land, safe land, she weeps.
4: By the time the ship docked, my mother had a single and very narrow mission in mind. Um, She was going to do whatever she could to save me, truly, because she herself wasn't fully convinced that I was still alive. So when the ship reached shore at the Big Bay Naval Base, she thrust me into the arms of the very first white man she saw, who was a, a soldier there on the base. And that soldier pointed her to a building with a Red Cross on it, it was the um, American Red Cross. And so my mother went there, my mother had no English words whatsoever to explain that her baby was sick and and she needed help. And so she passed me off to uh, the nurses there. And it was in that moment, for the very first time, that I think my mother could actually take one true deep breath, because she no longer was carrying me in her arms. And that she felt safe now that she was with You know, she was in a facility of doctors and nurses that could help revive her baby. And indeed they did. You know, immediately doctors and nurses uh, hooked me up to an IV drip. My mother ended up laying on the ground underneath my hospital bed. um, and, And I'm certain, out of sheer exhaustion, just fell into the deepest sleep. I just think about that time, I just can't imagine... Here's this young mother, 30 years old. She has carried her baby for three and a half weeks in the middle of the ocean, fleeing her war-torn country and unsure of what her future is holding and unsure of even where her family is going to end up. And her single concern is keeping her baby alive. And that the the moment she's able to release her baby into the arms of uh, medical professionals, that is the moment that I could imagine, like one's body just gives in, and she just, the way she described it, she just, you know, I, I can't translate the word correctly, but, but the Khmer word is a lop. And I think the closest translation I could come up with is that you faint.
5: We'll be right back. Put recovers at the Red Cross, and after this temporary stint in the Philippines, the family finally makes it to America. They settle in Corvallis, Oregon, where they are among the first Cambodian refugees brought into this community.
4: There's this um, perfume in the air in Corvallis, Oregon, that I am certain has to do with all of the crops that grow all up and down the Willamette Valley. You have strawberries and raspberries, blackberries, um, any kind of berry you can imagine grows in the Willamette Valley. And so every summer, the air is just filled with an absolute sweetness that um, is something that I think of and I smile whenever I think of my hometown um, there in Oregon. so my family, I grew up in a, I would describe our neighborhood as sort of a a lower middle-class neighborhood. Um, and, it, you know, we, we, my family lived in a, in a ranch-style house. It was a three-bedroom, two-bath house, constantly overrun with kids because not only were my parents raising myself and my siblings, but they were also raising one of my cousins. And then, over the years, more of my cousins.
5: Immediately, the family embarks on the project of rebuilding their lives. Though the landscape is lush and welcoming, the transition is far from seamless. Ma and Ba struggle to find work.
4: My dad went from wearing a a navy uniform with three stripes on his epaulets and feeling very proud of who he was uh, working for the Cambodian government to now suddenly wearing an apron and flipping burgers at our local diner in downtown Corvallis called um, Burton's Diner. And my mom, she had to convince my dad uh, to go out and find work, because my mom is a very prideful woman, and though she accepted the help of our church sponsors in Carvales, she didn't want any anybody in America to think that we were dependent on Americans to survive. Um, she wanted to prove that we were independent and that we could survive on our own. So she worked as a janitor, scrubbing toilets and vacuuming and mopping floors at the Student Health Center at Oregon State University. And it was essentially menial labor when we first arrived in Carvallis. And, um, you know, I never—I remember growing up and not really seeing them at home much. In essence, we were raised, uh, when I say we, my siblings and my cousins were raised by my older sister, Sinero. Um, She was the oldest in the family. She was eight years old when we escaped Cambodia. And she was the one that cooked our dinners. And um, she was the one that babysat us. walked us to school and whatnot and I think that this is one of the things as a child of immigrants but specifically a child of refugees um, that I've come to learn and and appreciate and, and be extraordinarily grateful for for my parents is that there's that kind of silent sacrifice that parents do you know when one leaves one's country by force and in the case of my family because of a war you end up in another country you do absolutely whatever it takes to do to survive
5: Tell me a bit about the Khmer expectations culturally regarding familial duty and what it means to be a member of a family and particularly what it means um, to be a female member of a family, to be a daughter.
4: In my culture, in the Khmer culture, when you are born, and if you are born female, essentially your life is going to have one path only, and that path is that one day you are going to get married right to a Khmer man, and you are going to be a stay-at-home mother, and or you know work in the rice paddies if your family happens to own rice paddies. But you know, for for girls and for women in Cambodia, there's no sense of agency. There's no sense of independence. It's almost as if you belong to the men in your family. It's a very patriarchal society in that way. And so in America, that was really difficult. Indeed, it was a culture clash um, in my family and specifically for my parents and even more specifically for my mother because so much of what America is, is for, for being a woman is different than how it is to be a woman in Cambodia. And so on the one hand, though my mother went out and worked outside of the home, she wore pants. She ended up learning how to drive. She did all of these things that Khmer women don't do in Cambodia, but we were not in Cambodia. We were in America, and they were starting new lives. And so she understood she had to operate in a different way. However, she still held on to those cultural codes of what it means to be a girl in the Khmer culture, because that's the way that she raised my sisters and I. One of the things that I grew up hearing uh, as well as my sister's, was one day when you grow up, you're going to have a husband. And when you do, you have to have a hot meal ready for him when he gets home from work. I'll never forget that. She told us that so many times, it just seared into my into my entire being. And so I had a very narrow vision of what it meant to be a Khmer daughter. And at the time, one of the things that's so hard is that In American culture, and American society, it's already hard enough to be a teenager and figure out how to fit in, but then to have this added complexity of being a Cambodian refugee um, in American society and the added familial pressure and cultural pressure of adhering to and maintaining a fidelity to my own Cambodian culture, while also navigating this American culture, that was an extremely difficult place to be, and to navigate those two worlds, it was a real challenge. Uh, and not just for me. This is something that, you know, is repeated with, uh, among many refugees and among many immigrants.
5: Though Ma imposes many of these Khmer conventions upon her children, she herself had flouted them when she was a teenager growing up in Cambodia. Ma was raised in a very traditional family and she was expected to fulfill all the duties of a perfectly obedient kamai daughter but she bristled she pursued an education and when her marriage to puts father was arranged she fled she literally ran away so she had this history of really not wanting this but nonetheless you know fulfilling her duty And that becomes a huge part of her story and then a huge part of her story with you. That's right.
4: And then it became my story until I met my wife, essentially. I often feel that as a child, we, we come across these moments in our lives where when we get a glimpse into our parents before they were parents, like they were actually people. They they were young people. They were kids also. They had dreams. They had ambitions. You know, they fought with their parents the way you know I fought with my parents. You know, they were their own people because when I when I was growing up, I only ever saw my parents as just parents. And so there's this whole other life that they had before they had children and before they they made a family together. And so for my mom, when I learned the story about how she ran away because she didn't want to get married in an arranged marriage. What I understood about her was that, oh my gosh, all this time I felt that my mom and I had been always in conflict with each other, always fighting with each other, and all this time I thought it was because we were so different. When in fact, what that story tells me, the story of my mother running away rather than getting married, is that we are actually so similar.
5: And... When you were a kid growing up and your mother was saying, really essentially, you know, your job is to marry a Khmer man and have a hot dinner ready for him at the table, you didn't know any of this. And, you know, I think our parents often protect us from this knowledge or protect themselves from our having this knowledge when we're children. That's right. In addition to secrecy... Put also grows up amidst violence. Ba, her father, has a temper. But it's not until well into her adulthood that Put realizes why he was so often angry. After enduring the war and trauma of escaping Cambodia, like so many survivors, Ba had PTSD. I
4: think from a wider lens about this idea of writing memoir, there's always this question that that comes up of, you know, what do you put in and what do you leave out. And on the topic of my father's violence, I really struggled with that because I I still wanted to protect him. I still wanted to protect our family and that and that's the power of secrets. And yet a bigger part of me felt that I absolutely needed to write about my father's violence as a way in which to show how complex of a person he is. And also a way in which to show how war has a very long tail. War impacts people in such deep ways that, that manifest later on and manifest across generations. And this is something that I think so much about now, especially when I see on the news the war in Ukraine, and I think about, oh my gosh, all the men in Ukraine. How many more families are going to be like mine, where the fathers don't have an outlet for... Their PTSD and it manifests in very violent ways, or you know, either violence towards family members or violence towards themselves. Um, and um, you know, so much of what I experienced growing up with my father's short temper and his violence, and ultimately how he had a nervous breakdown and ended up being admitted into a psychiatric ward, I can look on it now as an adult and look behind me and look with compassion. But at the time, when you're in the middle of it, all I had was anger towards my father. I just felt so angry at him. Like, how could you hurt people you love? How could you hurt your own kids, your own wife? And that anger, for me, manifested in me stabbing my father with a pencil when I was four years old.
5: I was just thinking about that. You know, your yeah. weapon your weapon was a number two pencil.
4: Exactly. And, yeah. and, and
5: intervening in the dynamic between your parents, intervening in the violence between your parents as a four-year-old.
4: Yeah, I, I had to stop it. You know, I, I have always felt that my duty was to protect my mother. It's something that I felt was an intrinsic part of me, that I was I was put on this earth to protect my mother. And that indeed also she was put on the spur to protect me. And so, in that sense, there was this always existing, this very symbiotic relationship between us, and, or, you know, one would say codependence, which is also very true. But the difference between my relationship with my mother and my sibling's relationship with our mother is that story on the boat and the fact that my mother saved me. Because what it meant was that already being female in my culture, I was saddled with this notion of debt and duty, Uh, just culturally being female in Cambodia. On top of that, we add the extra dimension of the fact that my mother saved me. It just compounded my sense of duty to my mother, that I owed her everything. I thought at one point I owed her my life. And so in essence, I felt like Every action that I made had to do with protecting her, preserving our relationship, preserving our reputation, making her happy. Everything that I did was focused on her. And in that kind of dynamic, there's no me.
5: What a profound and telling way of viewing oneself. There's no me. In this dynamic, as a young girl, Put struggles with her identity... She doesn't have language for it. Who is she?
4: I think I knew since I was a little girl that I was different. I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't know the word gay back then. But I knew it was different. I knew that I liked girls in a different way than I liked boys. And yet, because I was so confused by that feeling, I did absolutely everything that I could Uh, to tamp that feeling down because I just thought it was just it was so weird and it was very disorienting to me because I thought you know I'm not supposed to like why why do I feel something you know beyond liking you know my female friends what is this other feeling that I'm feeling and it was kind of just this I can barely articulate and describe it other than to say it was just this depth of emotion. Um, for certain female friends I had when I was growing up that and I did not have that feeling at all towards boys and you know I could look back at it on it now and it's so obvious I was crushing out on you know my, gir- my girlfriends when I was a kid but then there was another piece of it too why I understood I was different. My siblings they always used to call me tomboy because I I dressed like my brother. I wore jeans and t-shirts always. I hated wearing a dress. I still do now But where things really, I think, sort of became clear to me or a feeling that got really rooted in me was when my mom also started calling me tomboy. My siblings and my mother saw who I was before I saw who I was. I felt who I was, but I couldn't see and admit who I was, which is that I was gay. And that's one of the things where, when I look back, what we do to try to figure out our own identities it's almost like that there's a self-sabotage i just didn't know that there were things i hid from myself there were things about myself that i didn't want to acknowledge and then and the big thing was that I, the, the fact that i was gay and so that was a secret that i that i kept to myself even when i did have the word for what i was feeling toward women
5: and do you attribute that to what it was going to mean for your mother to know that.
4: Absolutely. I knew that if I were to admit in my family, with my mother, that I was gay, it was going to cause a rupture, an unbelievable rupture, that that we may never recover from. I was certain of that. Um, And indeed, the rupture did
5: happen. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. By 1990, Put is 16 years old, and her family has opened up their home to over a dozen relatives from Cambodia who'd survived the genocide and fled. The house is just full of traumatized family members, all of whom have, as Put describes it, genocide eyes. Eyes that are glassy and opaque. Eyes that take in no light and let none out either. This is the year her mother takes her on a trip to Cambodia.
4: I had no idea what was about to happen. I didn't know anything about my country. I grew up an American kid. And so at the tail end of that trip, when suddenly there was a line of young men outside our hotel door with their mothers, asking my mother to essentially set up their sons in an arranged marriage with me, um, I was just absolutely filled with panic. and. Suddenly, I was thrust into this scenario where there were these young men my age, my men. I should just call them what they were, teenagers. They, they were boys. I was a girl waiting to, you know, have their mothers marry, marry them off to me. I grew suspicious of my mother because I thought, oh my gosh, is this why she brought me with her? Is this why she chose me to come to Cambodia? Is she going to leave me here to get in and marry me off? And she didn't do that, but it certainly... Sparked a deep fear in me. Looking back, I can say that that was part of the grooming, that that was part of the conditioning that you are going to grow up and marry a Khmer man.
5: This trip triggers something in Put, and when they return home, she begins running away. Of course, Put doesn't know this at the time, but running away is what her mother had done too all those years ago. Running away is part of her inheritance. When she graduates from high school, she runs to college, where she continues to struggle with her identity. She is recognizing that she has feelings for women, but she stifles the feelings. And so she runs away, again, this time from her very self. She busies herself to the point of exhaustion, anything to avoid her truths.
4: That was a really hard time in my life. You know, when, when I got to college, I think because of the family in which I came from, I was already used to working and not just working, but overworking. And so I really ex- overextended myself by trying to graduate college in three years at the University of Oregon. And there was a lot of pressure in that, but also there was a pressure building inside of me that I knew I was gay. I knew I had attractions towards, um, towards women and toward female friends in particular, And yet I didn't know how to express that. I I, I felt like I couldn't be who I was because if I were to admit that, um, the consequences in my family would be too severe. And so in college, I tried to outrun my own feelings by overworking myself. I had two part-time jobs. I took the maximum number of class credits that I could um, at school. I just did everything I could to not think about this deeply unsettling feeling in myself that I was gay. And, um, what I realized only looking back is that how foolish, right? Like we can never outrun ourselves. We can never outrun who we truly are. Um, it's going to come up at some point and we're going to have to face it. And, and indeed I did and, and, and had to and wanted to, I think that part of one search for identity is wanting to be free, ultimately, and I wanted to be free. I didn't know how to get there. I didn't know if I would have the courage to, to live as I am, as being a you know, lesbian, as being gay. Um, but I definitely wanted to get there because it was so heavy.
5: Oh, that's it's interesting, that word you just used, heavy.
4: <laughs> right. Yeah.
5: You write at one point that perfectionism uh, was the price for affection with your mother. And, you know, it just strikes me that you were gay. You knew you were gay. You wanted to be able to, like, fully live, you know, who you were and who you are and what your, you know, what your desires are and what your identity is. And, you know, maybe, just maybe, if you did everything else perfectly,
4: Mm -hmm.
5: maybe that would be okay.
4: That's exactly right, Yeah. Yeah, I thought if I could be perfect that that would be enough for my mother, that I would shine enough to balance out this ugly truth about me, which is that my mother had a gay child.
5: When Put graduates from college, she pursues journalism. She quickly has success in the field, and by her early 20s, she's working as a professional journalist and writer. When she is 25, Considered really old in her culture, Put makes a second trip to Cambodia with Ma. Given her geriatric age of 25, Put receives a lot of pressure on this trip. Nobody in the family understands why she's not yet married to her husband and cooking him dinner.
4: When I was a teenager, um, years earlier, meeting my cousins for the first time, we were all the same age and. They were working in the rice paddies, I was working in the strawberry fields of Corvallis, Oregon. But then flash forward, and I go on my second trip to Cambodia, and I am 25 years old, unmarried, and yet here are my the same cousins, they are married, toting babies on their hips. And they thought, what is wrong with you put like, do do you have a they you'll never forget all my cousins crowded around me and just started pitching me questions. Do you have a husband? Don't you have children? How old are you now? And I think that that actually, that trip brought a fair amount of shame to my mother because I, I saw my mother making excuses. Um, to my relatives of why I was not married and why I did not have children. And she was saying, you know, put, she's got a career, she's a journalist, and, you know, she'll she'll meet somebody eventually, but right now she's focused on earning money and, and saving up, she wants to buy a house. Like, just the excuses were just piled on thick because she didn't know, and I knew but didn't yet tell her the real reason.
5: So when you return home, you do tell her.
4: I did. I, I came out to my mother um, when I moved to California. And I wasn't dating anybody at the time, and I knew that um, I wanted to tell her myself that I was gay. So my mom flew down to the Bay Area where I was working to visit me one weekend. And um, I'll never forget just how stressful that moment was, because it, in my mind, it was a make it or break it moment. My mother would either accept me, or she would abandon me in that moment. That's what I felt was on the line. Um, and she did something that was unexpected. When I came out to my mother, when she came down to California for a weekend visit with me, she told me for the very first time, "I love you, Cohen." Now, in in my culture, we don't communicate things like "I love you" and "I'm sorry." It's you know the emphasis is more on action as as it is on language and and expressing through language. And so that was the first time she told me, I love you. And I thought in that moment, oh, the worst didn't happen. She's actually going to accept me. And just to make absolute sure she knew what I meant when I told her I'm gay, I piled this into my Honda Civic and I drove this across the, the Bay Bridge right into the heart of the gay district of San Francisco and the Castro. And it's just this moment that I'll never forget for all of my life in which my mom is, you know, we're going through the Castro and my mom is just seeing things that she's never seen before, including two men in leather chaps with their bare behinds hanging out. And she presses her cheek to the window and points at them. And she turns to me and she says, put, put, that to gay. And I said, Mom, yes, that's the gay! Stop pointing! I'm so embarrassed! And um, in my very naive mind, I thought, she gets it. She knows who I am now. And so I thought, oh, we're done. Don't need to say anything else more about who I am. She's accepted me. She has seen what what gay life or gay culture is in this one short drive we took down the Castro. But actually, we weren't done. Uh, We were very far from being done on the topic of me being gay.
5: Flash forward to 2010, and Put and Ma still aren't done getting to know one another on a deeper level. They're not estranged, exactly, but they're not sharing intimate details about their lives, either. Then, in this same year, Put gets a call from her mother. Ma has had a heart attack. Put puts her work on hold and rushes back to Oregon to help her mother, to protect her. When she's there... Her mother begins to tell her stories she's never heard before. Stories about who Ma was before she was Ma, before she was married and had children.
4: When I think back on my life, I always think about it in terms of these moments where there's a before and an after. And very clearly, my father's heart attack was one of those moments. There was... The mother I knew before my father's heart attack and then the mother I knew afterwards when she began to share stories about her life. And an interesting thing happened. The more she began to share stories of her life, the more I began to reflect on my own. And also that sort of magnified my own need to want to live as I am and to have much more clarity around the fact that I could try all I could to find and marry at least a man, if not a Khmer man, but know that in the end, that would not have been my true self. That would not have been the true put ring. So I think that I did enter relationships with men trying to convince myself that I could do one last thing for my mother, which is to marry a man. But in the end of the day, I couldn't do it. That just wasn't me. I wouldn't have been happy He wouldn't have been happy. I could tell it would, you know, would have been a miserable life because who wants to live in a cage when you already know who you are? And so I think that that's when I was got backed into a corner and I really had to reckon with myself. And and what was I going to do? How was I going to live my life? And how was I going to live it for me and no longer for her?
5: And it's so interesting, you know, what happens when finally there's no place else to go but the truth. hmm That's right. And by being backed into that corner and by, ironically, by your mother letting you see her in more layers of her complexity, that just liberates something in you. It doesn't make it any less tortured, but it's just, it liberates it.
4: That's right. Absolutely.
5: It's only then that Put finds herself falling head over heels in love with a woman that she'd met years before, but the timing hadn't been right. Her name is April, and now they begin a relationship. They move in together, and they plan to get married. Put will not be marrying a kamai man or a man at all. She will marry April. Finally, Put feels aligned with her identity she and April begin to plan a large and celebratory wedding. Friends will be coming from all over the world. Put's siblings will come. But at a certain point in the planning, Put realizes that her parents are not planning to be present. They know she's gay by now, but they just cannot accept the finality of her marriage to a woman.
4: Oh, that moment left a hole in my heart. It still does. Um, that hole is still there. I've reconciled that hole and I have filled that void in other ways and with other love. But it's hard when your own mother is the one who's absent at your wedding. For me, it was the most important day of my life because it was the proudest moment of my life. I had finally met somebody who I love and who I was in love with who I felt saw me for who I am and accepted me for who I am. And what happens when you meet that person? You want to share that person with your family and you know, with your parents. And in my case, I wanted to share that joy and happiness I had with my mother. And yet she couldn't be happy for me. And that's when I knew. I talk about this and I, and I, and I still think about it, that a part of me had to die so that the rest of me could live. The part of me that had to die was the baby on the boat. Finally had to die, the story of the baby on the boat and what that baby represented. That part had to die so that the rest of me could live and I could finally live for myself and find joy and happiness for myself and not live for my mother and because of my mother.
5: After Put's wedding to April, she and Ma rarely speak. Ba will occasionally fill her in on news when it's necessary. But in general, there is very little contact for quite a while. And then, in 2019, Putt's beloved father-in-law, April's father, Jimmy, is diagnosed with a terminal illness. Shortly before he dies, Putt and April throw him a party at one of his favorite restaurants, a celebration of his life, where he can be surrounded by family and friends.
4: When My father-in-law was dying and insisted on having a party to say goodbye to people in person um, while he was still standing and walking and talking. We ended up inviting my parents. I was skeptical that they would come. My wife wanted to, at minimum, at least just invite them because I had told my wife, April, and only her in the subsequent years after we got married that I would never forgive my mother if she did not meet April's father, before he passed away. I could not forgive that. I could forgive my parents for not coming to our wedding, but I would not forgive them if they didn't meet your dad. That's what I told April. And so April kind of took the initiative and she emailed my mom and told my mom that her father was dying and he was going to have a party and would they come? And the most surprising thing happened. I got a phone call on my cell phone the next day and it was my mom. We hadn't talked in months. And she said, April sent an email and let me know that her dad is dying. We want to join the party, but we don't know how to get to the restaurant in Portland. Even though my mom did say she wanted to go, I still wasn't sure if she was going to show up, if she and my dad were going to show up. And so similar to what happened at my wedding, um, I sort of glanced up now and again to look at the door to see if you know, they were gonna walk through. And at just the moment when I was going to give up and think, oh, you know, they're not gonna, they're gonna be no shows just as they were at my wedding. Um, there was a bit of a fuss at the foyer, and I saw April over at the foyer um, of the restaurant. And then I quickly saw, you know, I saw my father-in-law quickly making his way over with my mother-in-law. And next thing I knew, my parents and my in-laws were all hugging. And it's a moment that when I think back over the course of the years and, and the moments, the hard moments and the, and the tender moments, That single moment of tenderness did so much to calm me and soothe me and kind of rekindle the compassion I have for my mother. Because I also have to think about what it took for her to make the decision to come, knowing that we had been in conflict over me marrying a woman, that she did not accept having a gay daughter, and yet here she was meeting my in-laws It was a pretty remarkable moment. It's so astonishing when I think about it. There was so much emotion that went into that moment, both for my father-in-law and mother-in-law, as well as my parents and and everybody else. My wife and I continued to care for my father-in-law for another month. Um, He passed one month after that party. And in the past, My mom was always the person that I would call if I had good news, Um, up until the point of our rupture, when I decided I was going to marry a woman. Up until that point, I always called my mom if I got a promotion at work, if I got an award in journalism, any good news, I would call her. When my father-in-law passed, I picked up the phone and I didn't call, but I texted my mother. She was the first that I thought to contact. And all I texted her was, he is gone. And, uh, and she texted me back three words. She texted me, sorry, going. And so in that moment, I understood we can begin again, the old relationship that my mom and I had needed to die so that a new relationship could be reborn in its place. And that's sort of where I'm at now with her is, is just trying to navigate a new relationship.
5: That's really beautiful, Put. Yeah. Really, really beautiful.
4: I had to be careful there. I felt the tears coming up.
5: Yeah, and me too. Here's Put, reading one final passage from her resonant memoir, Ma and Me. As
4: I drove north out of their subdivision, past the same farm fields I'd come to know by heart, I felt a pounding between my ears, that pounding traveled down in my body like a shot piercing that place in my heart where i had stockpiled pride confidence and self-acceptance to buffer against a perennial depression that always managed to sling me straight to the edge the realization i had was so clear i cried i had lived my life a slave to Gun, but i could never repay my mother there is a moment when you realize you are not the same person as your mother, and yet the things she taught you, the imprint she left, remains. I no longer have Matt's food to go home to because I no longer could go home. So, back in Seattle, when I finally stopped crying, I went to the kitchen and started cooking and didn't stop for days and then weeks. Mat's mantra repeated in my head as I chopped, diced, and stirred. Always have a hot meal ready for your husband. I substituted the word wife for husband and forged ahead. If I could no longer go home to eat Matt's food, I would make it for myself and the woman I loved.
5: Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakour is the story editor And Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance.
2: Right Rug Flooring.